0: that why don't we go ahead and turn our bibles to chapter 2 verse 6 and just a little bit of a a quick recap of where we've been if you were here uh, last week with us we were in chapter 1 18 through 32 and paul was uh, almost in a sense a prosecuting attorney as he was indicting the heathen the the the, the person who was uh, in a false religion, uh, the pagan religion, the natural man who had denied the existence of God and therefore had denied God's truth. And he, he kind of hangs the entire book of Romans on verses 16 and 17, actually, which was covered by Pastor Eric on a, on a Sunday morning message where he is unashamed of the gospel and he claimed it was the power of God unto salvation and, and the righteousness of God is revealed through that gospel. And so... The righteous man shall live by faith. That statement alone is kind of the driving force through the book of Romans. And so at that point, verse 18, he kind of puts in the clutch, he shifts gears, and he puts his, his sights on, on the pagan. He says, And no longer is, uh, is the, the goodness of God uh, revealed or the righteousness of God revealed through the gospel. He then says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And then he begins to lay out a series of exchanges that happen between the natural man. And, and and their and their sin. He says they exchanged first the incorruptible God for an image of the corruptible animal or a four-footed creature and and a man, a corruptible man. So they exchanged the incorruptible for the corruptible and began to worship it. The second exchange, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And then the third exchange, they exchanged the natural for that which was the unnatural. And as a result, you start to see a downward spiral of human behavior. Human sin starts to have a downward spiral. So the result, God gave them over, the first thing, to the lust of the... of their hearts to impurity, which was sexual immorality. And then he gave them over to degrading passions, which led to further uh, sexual immorality and and namely, homosexuality. And then from there, he gave them over to uh, uh, a depraved mind, which then he lay, lays out a laundry list of all of these sins, 21 to be exact, things that are not proper, things that are worthy of death. And it doesn't necessarily stop there because he says not only for those who do those things or practice those things are they worthy of death, but, but those who are giving hearty approval to those things. And so sanctioning sin through legislation is one way you can give hearty approval to sin, right? We sanction sin through legislation. We see it in our laws. We see it in, in the ways in which we now do business celebrating sin by means of parades, festivals, normalizing it through our education system, maybe the music and entertainment industry. We start to see the normalization and the celebration of sin. And so giving hearty approval is another indicator of God's judgment on, on a land. And, and so this, um, this downward spiral of human sin starts to take hold, not only in the individual's life, but also in society. And you start to see it more so as a, a judgment on a society. And And unfortunately, a lot of those parallels can be drawn to uh, our country right now. Some of the conditions of our society very much parallel what Paul talks about in the end of chapter one. And so now in chapter two, Pastor Eric again last Sunday uh, was uh, in verses one through five, and he turns his sights on the moralist, the one who believes that they are self righteous based on the good things that they do. And this self righteous person was holding these folks, these people that Paul just spoke of, in contempt because they too said, Yes. I agree with you, Paul. I don't do those things. I don't approve of what you just listed out there in the back half of chapter one. So therefore, I'm kind of on my moral high ground. I'm pearl clutching. I'm putting my hands on my my hips, and and I'm I'm in hearty approval of that. And so they were standing in judgment, but they were standing in judgment unto condemnation. And then Paul says, not so fast, Mrs. or Mr. Morality. Uh, By passing judgment on the heathen, do you think yourself, do you believe that you will escape judgment? And he goes into a whole litany of why they all are going to uh, uh, not escape judgment. See, they were passing judgment based on their own standards of righteousness versus the righteousness of God, and they were judging people unto condemnation, which is not the way to go. A repentant sinner uh, we'll make judgments from time to time. We are fruit inspectors as Pastor Eric shared last Sunday and, and we don't do that with a condemning heart. We do it with the truth and love. As Pastor Brad, uh, his last two messages were speaking the truth in love. And so when we come to another brother or sister who is an heir, whose lifestyle or actions are not lining up with scripture, we tell them the truth in love and we do it with a scriptural basis. And we tell them that it is, there's a, there's a way of escape. You don't have to pay the penalty of this heir. There is a full pardon in the name of jesus if it's a non-believer that's a it's a it's a difficult conversation no doubt about it but if it is a believer we we give them the truth and love either way and so the kindness of the God, of the lord in verse four says leads you to repentance It's the harshness of man that leads you to rebellion and and, and kicks you further away from God. People will say, I don't don't want what you're selling if you just come out with them with such harshness. So the kindness of the Lord leads you to repentance. Uh, I remember when I became uh, an early Christian, uh, early in my Christian walk, it was somewhere around early 2000s. That was Chris Tomlin's like number one song at that point, The Kindness of the Lord brings you to repentance. And so that song just so stuck with me. And so when we covered that verse last Sunday, I just had that little bit of reminiscence. And so, you know, now we're not, again, judging people unto condemnation, but I'm to love my brothers and sisters enough to tell them the truth in love, line it up with Scripture, give them the standard of righteousness that is out of the Bible. So that brings us to uh, uh, verse 5. And and that Pastor Eric did end in verse 5, but it was kind of mid-sentence, so we're going to pick up in verse 5, and we're going to see how far we get tonight. We're going to try to get through verse 23. That's the goal. So verse 5 says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath in revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, and to those who by perseverance in doing good seek glory and honor in immorality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. So Paul again is continuing his train of thought against the person who is the self-righteous, the moralist, the one who is hypocritical in a sense of thinking that they are better than simply because they are doing good. And so verses 5:11, Paul is bluntly pointing out to the moralist as if to wake them up from their lethargic self-deception. He says, "Your stubbornness and unrepentant heart is inviting God's wrath and God's retribution." The word stubborn can mean obstinate. It's a refusal to change one's position no matter how much information is given to them. No matter how much you try to persuade them and try to talk to them, they're obstinate, they're stubborn. They will not come off of that position for nothing. They have dug their heels in. And then the person that has the unrepentant heart, if you notice, it is a heart issue. It is a hardened heart towards the things of God. So everyone has an account with God. You have this account, and, and we're storing up wrath in this sense. He's saying you're storing up wrath if you believe that you are going to escape judgment. And so I believe there's three types of accounts with God right now. And, and one is, the first account is having an outstanding balance. All of the sins that I've ever committed without coming to Christ, all of those sins are on a balance sheet. And they're starting to rack up the surcharges, the interest, all of the things that can make that account continue to increase. I'm in the red, so to speak. I am negative in that account. I'm I'm in major debt. And there is no way that I can pay off that debt. So I have a huge outstanding balance. I believe there's somebody that uh, uh, then can zero out their balance. You have a zero balance with the Lord, and that is the person who confesses and repents of their sins and receives forgiveness. Christ wipes away, justifies you from all of your past sins. You've zeroed out your balance. You've paid, uh, you haven't paid your penalty. Christ has paid your penalty, and you've accepted his payment for those, for those uh, sins in the past. And so once that sin issue has been resolved, now we go to verse 7. We go to verse seven because we start to see that there is a doing of the word that Paul will reiterate throughout these scriptures, throughout this, this portion of Scripture. It's not so much as to know what is right or to hear what is right, but to do." And so it says, "To those by perseverance in and this is I, I circled this and underlined it, "doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life." And so those are who are doing good. So there's a way to Uh, earn a positive balance. So once the salvation issue is settled, you're not doing good as a means to gain favor with the Lord, to earn more grace, or to earn any status with the Lord. The salvation issue is settled. You've accepted Christ. Now there is a doing good. There's, there's action involved in the Christian life. And so as I serve the Lord with a pure heart to bring glory and honor to him, to build his kingdom, to be a witness to a lost world, I can now start to uh, earn rewards in heaven that I, I store up in heaven for that time and eternity. And so you can have an outstanding balance where you, you're, you're, uh, you're, your account is building up. Uh, Pastor Eric used a great example where he had that, that uh, jaywalking ticket that went from $200 to $1,200. And if that ticket didn't get re- rectified, didn't get resolved, you could only uh, imagine the penalty that would continue to be uh, increased and, and how that would now be stored up against him. So we have an outstanding balance. You can zero out your balance by coming to Christ, and then once you do come to Christ, then you can lay up treasures for yourself in heaven. You can have a positive balance. You can be in the black, so to speak, when when you're talking about accounting. Verses 8 and 9. We get into, it says, the selfishly ambitious, they do not obey the truth. They obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Uh, When you look at the selfishly ambitious, it speaks of a person who is only out for their personal gain. They're out for their own power, and they're out for their own authority. They will step on your back. They will deny the truth. If you notice, they do not obey the truth. They obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. So by disobeying the truth there uh, and obeying unrighteousness, remember unrighteousness was man's sin against other man. They're willing to do anything and everything against their fellow man to get to that position of power, to status, to get to that next level. And so these selfishly ambitious really don't have a concern for their fellow man. And in fact, what defines them is wrath and indignation. Wrath is that anger, that it's an angry disposition. They, that's just who they are at their core. They have an angry disposition, and the the, uh, the indignation is an anger that kind of comes up as if you if you've ever boiled water and then you turn the burner off and the water subsides. That's that indignation. It boils up and then it subsides. It boils up and then it subsides. So this is the type of person that that is by person or, or, or is the selfishly ambitious. They are the ones that are storing up wrath for themselves. Even though they think they are a good person, this is what defines them. So the result is tribulation. Not necessarily the great tribulation, but it's the pressing together, it's the distress, it's the affliction, it's the judgment of God. Uh, the tribulation they're, they're storing up for themselves. And so verse 9 says that there will be tribulation and distress for every soul who does evil. So again, the doing is emphasized here. The practice of, this is a lifestyle, this is a common practice for these uh, self-righteous moralists. God's righteousness and justness is demonstrated through his willingness to hold everyone accountable equally without any sort of favoritism. And that's what we see there in verse 11 where he says there is no partiality uh, apart with God. There's no partiality apart. With God, uh, And so even though the Jews were the chosen race, even though the Jews, it, you could look at the Jews as uh, God was partial to them. But he did choose the Jews to uh, re, uh, reveal his law, uh, reveal messianic prophecies. He had many prophets uh, that were of the Jewish race uh, give us many prophecies, right? So in a sense, the Jews had the advantage. They had the leg up on receiving the law and the different aspects of, of his word. And so, yes, the ones by whom God revealed his forthcoming events and, and through the prophets and, and the one by which the Savior would come through, the Jews were, in a sense, the chosen race. But God doesn't favor the Jews necessarily in, in terms of judgment. There is no partiality. They are expected to abide by his laws just as much as anybody else, and we're going to get into that here momentarily. So a Jew's ancestral heritage doesn't excuse them from accountability, but rather it puts them first in line For accountability. If you notice there, it says to the Jew first and then the Greek in in verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and of the Greek. So a person's eternal destiny is not dependent on their national origin, their racial background, their ethnic makeup. God doesn't prefer the American over the Canadian. I know we think we're, we're really special as Americans, and this is a, a very special country, but God doesn't have any partiality over the American versus the Australian. He doesn't have one race over another, one skin color over another, one person who is a, a, a speaks this language over another. There is no partiality with God, whether you're wealthy or you're poor, whether you're popular and well-liked, or whether you're the social outcast or the ostracized. The, the, the misfit, if you will, there is no partiality with God. It comes down to are you a sinner saved by grace? Are you a saint or are you not and a saint doesn't mean that again from from a kind of a Catholic perspective where you have to have to uh, uh, acquire certain things uh, after your death. Things, certain things have to happen to, in order to be beatified as a saint. No, are you a sinner saved by grace? That's the biblical definition of a saint. Or have you rejected God's grace? Have you rejected God's love? And therefore, are you in your own sin? Are you a sinner or not? There's no partiality. It's really going to be one of two categories where judgment will fall. And so, verse 10, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good. Again, emphasizing that Does. And, and we see that time and time in, in, in Scripture again, the, the faith and, and, and your trust in the Lord and then the doing of that. So it's an outward expression. It's an outward representation of what has occurred inside. If I have a profession of faith in Christ, there should be such an appreciation. We had this discussion uh, Monday morning when we were going through James, and I do have a couple Scripture references with, uh, that refer to James. But we were... We were talking about when, when you get into that place of the Lord if it, and you realize and you come to that understanding of what he's done for you, just how the great lengths he went to love you, to save you, and, and, and how much you've been forgiven. There can't help but to be a response to, now what can I do to serve you? What can I do for you, Lord? It's just as if uh, I was stranded on the 405 freeway and one of my friends came by and just happened to see me stranded and they helped me change that flat tire. I would, I would feel this debt of gratitude towards them and I would want to take them out to lunch or you know, do something in return just to express my gratitude and show them thanks. How much more should we in, in, our, in our walk with God say, Lord, what can I do to, uh, uh, to, to satisfy, to, to make you pleased, to glorify your name as a result of what you've done for me on the cross? And so the other side of this coin is the doing good. And so we are, again, we know that we're saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, right? So that no one might may boast. My salvation isn't about me. It isn't about what I do. It isn't about the type of person I am. It's all about what Christ did for me on the cross. It's grace through faith. Thank God. I can't boast about it. There's nothing I can do. But once I do have that salvation, now I have to, in humility, ask the Lord, what can I do for you today? Jesus taught on this in John, I believe John 13, verses 12 through 16. Is it up on the screen? Amen. So John chapter 13, verses 12 through 16. It says, So when he, Jesus, had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I, then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He's talking about the doing here. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Verse 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Verse 17, If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. You are blessed. You are happy as he who does these things. And so Christ is showing an example of it's not just enough to observe my, uh, my washing of the disciples' feet. It's not just enough. Happy are you that do them. In verse 14, Paul asks a rhetorical question. Excuse me, uh, uh, James, uh, in chapter 2, verse 14, James teaches that faith in Christ is made evident by our works. And he asks the rhetorical question. He says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says that he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? And that's a really kind of controversial question when you're talking about faith and works. But again, the salvation issue is done. Now we're talking about the faith that is now evident through my works. And so this isn't a works trip. I'm not trying to guilt anybody into uh, works. This is, again, what the Bible, I believe, teaches. And so in verse 19, uh, he says something radical. James says something radical in verse 19 of chapter 2. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Faith without works is dead. Even the demons believe in God. It's not enough just to have faith. Even the demons recognize who God is, they believe, and they shudder. They understand his power. They understand his authority. They understand that he's going to, at one point, he's going to cast them into outer darkness. Faith without works is dead, James says. So works is the outward expression of what we have received in Christ. And so I believe as as a Christian, if you are feeling unsatisfied, if you've got this kind of unhappy season, you're unfulfilled, you have this dryness to you, you're attending church, you might be in fellowship, you might have a really strong devotional life, you might be listening to K wave in between, you know, work to to, uh, to home and home to work. You're redeeming that time on the road, not letting a, a moment go by without getting into the word. But are you just hearing? Are you just reading? Are you, in, are you just studying? Are you just taking in? Because if you continue to take in, continue to take in, there's a spiritual component that I, I'm here to friendly and in truth, in love, give you the truth that there is a pouring out that needs to happen. A healthy, happy Christian not only takes in, gets equipped, gets built up, gets fed, but then they go and they pour out. There is a coming in. A time of refreshment, a time of equipping, a time of getting fed, but then there is a time to pour out. There's a time to invest in the kingdom. There's a time to give to those around you, whether it is witnessing, again, to the lost world, whether it is ministering to the body, whether it's glorifying the Lord in, in either respect. And so, unfortunately, there's people that kind of get unhappy. They kind of get stuck in their walk with the Lord, be, and they, they don't understand why, because they're constantly in the Word, and they're getting fed, and they're getting built up and equipped And they're not quite sure why they're unhappy and unsatisfied. They're not doing. Happy is he that does these things, Jesus said. So get engaged. Engage yourself. Take that step of faith. Ask the Lord, what can I do for you today? Give me one thing, Lord. Give me one thing. And when that Lord gives you one thing, you'll start to experience the joy of the Lord again. You'll get that joy back. And all of a sudden, serving the Lord isn't the have-to's, it's the get-to's. But we have to be also concerned with the constant doer, the person who's always serving, always in action, never taking the time for refreshment, never taking the time to sit at the Lord's feet. You know the story between Mary and Martha. Martha started to get bitter and resentful of Mary who was sitting at the Lord's feet. And so if you got that Martha complex, you can start to look around and say, you know what, I'm doing more than this person. I'm, 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 I'm putting out more work for the Lord, and yet these other people aren't doing as much as me. And you can start to get this self-righteous attitude. You can start to burn out. You, again, you can start to lose your joy in serving the Lord. And again, these get-tos turn into have-tos. And so we have to strike that balance of coming in, getting refreshed like we hear tonight, and then we go out and we pour out, that coming in and going out. And so I believe that is the, the model that the Bible sets up for us. When we're talking about our faith being in action, it's, it's the faith that, again, is the outpouring into this lost and dying world and to a body that at times is hurting. And so finding that purpose and finding that, uh, what the Lord has for you to do, you can ask the Lord, Lord, what can I do for you today to, 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 to answer that call? So as we get into verses 12 through 16, we're going to get into some scriptures that if we read it all at once, at least this was my experience as I began to study this portion of scripture, 12 through 16, it, gets, it it's really dense, in my opinion. There's a lot of words here, and it gets really dense. And as you get three, four scriptures in, you almost forget what you read two or three scriptures prior to. So we're going to take it one at a time, and hopefully we can, we can make some sense of it because it is pretty dense. Verse 12 says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So what Paul is, is, is giving us a dichotomy or a differentiation between those of the haves and the have-nots, those who have sinned without the law are the Gentiles. Remember that the Jews were the chosen race; they were uh, given the the luxury or the curse, whatever however you want to look at it, of having the law revealed to them. They they had the law come through them. So he says, the Gentiles who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Those who have sinned under the law, that would be the Jewish race, right? They they received the law, will be judged. By the law. So God, in His infinite wisdom, chose to use the Jews as His people group uh, to, 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 to express the law, to bring the law in. The Gentiles did not have this luxury. Therefore, the Gentiles didn't have the law. Um, so this begs the question what happens to that unsuspecting Gentile? The Gentile that isn't aware of God's law, doesn't understand His standards of righteousness. How is that fair for that Gentile to go about? his life or her life, and still be, in verse 12, will also perish without the law. They're, they're going to also perish. That doesn't seem fair, God. So Paul says if a Gentile lived his life without the benefit of knowing the law but sinned, he will perish. It means entirely destroyed without the law. So that seems unfair. It seems harsh. It seems kind of downright wrong, right? If, if you just think about it. So I would ask you, if, if you agree with that, if it seems unjust, if it seems wrong, I would ask you, where do you think that feeling came from? That feeling of, that's not right, that's unjust. Where do you think that feeling came from? That notion of fairness, of right or wrong, that's kind of almost embedded within you. Where do you think that particular feeling or that notion came from? And I would argue, and we'll see here in a moment, it's embedded within your heart. It was encoded into your heart through the Lord. It's called your conscience. We'll get there here in a second. So verse 13, so it says, For if... For it is not the hearers of the law who are just, but God, just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So again, Paul emphasized the doers of the law. So again, the, the Jews had the benefit of having the law. It wasn't enough just to be in the presence of it and to hear it, it wasn't enough just to study it. They had to abide by it. They had to apply it into their lives. There had to be some physical outpouring of that law. There had to be some recognition by those around to say, yes, even though you are Jewish, there should be some, uh, there should be some practice of that law that I see from, from the outside looking in. So again, having the, having the law would be no benefit if that person didn't have the law and in fact just disregarded it and put it off to the side. That's what Paul is saying. And so James 1, 22, James 1, verses 20 through 25 says, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. This lines up with what Jesus was teaching in, in that scripture that we just referenced. Again, this lines up with, again, the, the effectual doer, not just the forgetful hearer. As you continue to hear, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes I'm a forgetful hearer. Sometimes I'm a selective, selective hearer. My wife will give me some information. I have some selective hearing complexes at times, and I, I forget. It's good to do those things, right? Um. When you start to do things, you're putting them in application. It becomes repetitious. It now becomes something that you can, you can uh, count on. So verses 14 through 16. So here's where Paul starts to talk about back to the Gentile, and he starts to talk about how God has given them a conscience. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, the Gentiles not having the law, are a law to themselves. As you can see, there's a lot of, right? It's, it's dense language. So the Gentiles, again, who don't have the law, the Jews do, are instinctively or naturally doing the things of the law. That instinct, that natural inclination is a law to themselves. It's parallel to what the Jews have uh, formally. It's almost an informal law that has been encoded in their conscience. Verse 15, it says, In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Verse 16, on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So God's fairness and rightness fully addresses that question that I posed back in verse 12. What happens to the Gentile who didn't have the luxury of having the law expressed to them, hearing the law, studying the law? How can they be held accountable by a standard of righteousness that they didn't even know existed? And Paul here explains it. Because couldn't somebody plead ignorance? Couldn't somebody say, I simply wasn't aware. I, I didn't know the speed limit was 45 miles an hour. I, I, I didn't know that that was wrong. How can someone be held accountable for something they, they didn't know about? How can someone perish for sins that they didn't even know were sins? And then it begs the question, especially for the skeptic or the cynic or somebody who's not believing in God, how can a so-called loving, righteous, holy God judge and condemn a person who is without this knowledge? That doesn't seem very loving. That doesn't seem like a loving God to me. So I don't want to necessarily serve or or worship that God. So the Gentile was not made aware of the law as, as the Jew was. And these are fair questions, and quite frankly, if you don't know what Paul is saying here, it could be a, a difficult question to answer and, 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 and really hard to defend. But you have to, let's go back to the facts a little bit before we answer the question. We established back in chapter 1 that God had innately put the desire in man to worship. We saw people groups, uh, we, we know of people groups all throughout time and and, and and the earth who have a system of worship. There is a, a, something innately in us that wants to worship something bigger than us. And whether that's false gods or the true God, we have this desire to worship something bigger than us, something more powerful than us. Man also was created with the ability to recognize design, order, and complexity. So when you look at creation... You see design, order, and complexity. You then have to believe that there is a designer, there is a God that has created the earth. And so you, we have that going for us as well. So Paul then says, if, if we've been created by God and given, he's given us something else, and it's another reason as to why we should worship him, we should recognize him as God, and that's a conscience. The working conscience bears witness to the law of God. It bears witness to something fair or unfair, just or unjust, right or wrong. It gives us a sense of right or wrong. As soon as I kind of pose that that question to you, how can somebody who doesn't know or, or been made aware of something, how can they be held accountable to that? How is that right? That doesn't seem fair. And so Paul says there is a conscience that is encoded within their heart. It's almost like we're preloaded, like a software, a computer coming preloaded with software. That software is in our heart, it's our conscience. And so on a macro level, when you look at mankind, no matter where you go, there, there are people groups that know that murder is wrong, that they shouldn't murder another human being. You don't have to tell them that they understand that. They, taking something that's not yours, stealing, is, is wrong. To desire another man's wife or for a wife to desire another man's husband, coveting is, is wrong. We understand that. To deliberately mislead somebody, to slander, to lie, is is wrong. Th- those are things that don't necessarily have to be explained. They're written on the fleshly tablets of our heart. They're in, in our in our conscience. So therefore the Gentiles, the one without the law, do instinctively or naturally the things of the law, which now becomes a law to them. So their conscience now becomes parallel or synonymous with what the Jew has, the formal law. And so these things now run parallel and and the Gentile now acts as as whether or not their, their actions and their thoughts are now going to either bear witness with their or their conscience is going to add, bear witness to their thoughts and actions or not. And so you say, okay, Chris, I'll accept that. That's what, if that's what the word says, I'll accept that. So the next question would be, if they have this working conscience and that acts as their kind of moral compass, if you will, what about judgment? How, how are they still, um, if they violate their conscience, are they still... Going to be punished? Are they still going to be punished for their sins? And so that's where verse 16 settles it for me. (laughs) If you look at verse 16, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. There's six words in there that I pulled out, and my name or your names are not inserted into that equation. The first three words, God will judge, and the last three words, through Christ Jesus. It doesn't say God will judge on the counsel of Chris Vlasic, through Christ Jesus. So I really don't have a say-so, and if God is righteous and just, he's going to figure it out through Christ as the mediator. God will judge. He's a righteous, just God. He's going to figure it out. It's not for me to make the call. It's not for me to worry about. Paul says, God will judge the secrets of men, and through Christ Jesus will be the lens by which that judgment is made. So many things that we do may seem praiseworthy from the outside looking in, but inwardly, we had some impure motives. God's going to be able to sift through that through Christ Jesus. And then there's some things that we might do that seem unseemly to God that might not look like they're righteous, but we actually had pure motives while we were doing those things, and God will judge those as well and account that uh, to us appropriately. So six words within verse 16, God will judge through Christ Jesus, and again, I'm not in that equation, so I have to allow God to be who he is, to give him the authority that he is due. He's sovereign, he's righteous, he's just. He will be the the ultimate arbiter in those situations. And so really, the Gentile is without excuse. The Gentile can't plead ignorance, just now like the Jew can't plead ignorance. The Jew has the law, they're without without excuse. The Gentile now is without excuse as well. God will say, I have put a conscience within you, and uh, that conscience was your moral compass. That was what you needed to abide by when you were making decisions in your life. So the Jew is without excuse. He can't shield himself behind his privileged status of being in the chosen race. And so is now the Gentile. So if a man willfully disregards, one little uh, added piece on the conscience. If a man continues to willfully disregard the truth, 1 Timothy 4.2 says, he will sear his own conscience as with the branding iron. So even though Paul was speaking to Timothy about false teachers, I believe the spiritual principle is if you continue to uh, go against truth, if you continue to deny truth and, and, and you are uh, denying your conscience, you are going to sear it as with the branding iron. I don't know if you've ever seen a cow with a uh, seared with a branding iron. There's, that skin will never be the same. It's numb, it's dull, it has no feeling, and it is forever scarred. And so when we continue to go against our conscience, that, that moral compass, that natural man will, uh, at that point, steer their conscience and, and, and not have the ability to discern right or wrong anymore. They, again, they will go down the wrong road. So as we get to the last portion of Scripture here, verses 17 through 24, Paul's going to get into the specific guilt of the hypocrite, of the moralist. So he says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God verse 18 and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness a corrector of the foolish a teacher of the immature having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth so again we have to picture we have to picture Paul right now if we could make this a courtroom Paul would be the prosecuting attorney and he's going to put up a Jew on the, on the witness stand and it's almost as if, as a skilled prosecutor does, he's laying out a scathing review of what they think they are. And so as you reread that again, that is the list that he comes up with. So he says, "Um, so you bear the name of the Jew, you rely upon the law, you boast in God, you know his will, and he starts to list these out one at a time, there's 11 of them. And he begins to build up the Jew with this long hypothetical statement. And he starts it off with that, those two words, but if. So if, if this is the case, you bear the name of the Jew, rely upon the law, boast in God, know his will, approve of the things that are essential, instructed out of the law, guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of the truth. He starts to lay out his case. And he's not using his own words. These are the words that the Jews use for themselves. These are their self-described, uh, uh, self-descri- this is how they describe themselves. And he's going to use their own words to indict them on their hypocrisy. So you can envision Paul, uh, indeed as an attorney, placing the Jew, the self-proclaimed uh, follower of the law, on the stand. And now Paul is going to ask a series of rhetorical questions, five questions to be exact, in verses 21 through 23. He says, you therefore, you teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that uh, that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? And then he finally kind of slams the final nail in the coffin. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. So he builds up the Jew with the, the very words that they describe themselves with, and he, and, he, and he lists out those 11 terms, and then he asks in a rapid-fire sense. You could almost see him in a courtroom just hammering away at the Jew on the witness stand, the hypocrite, the moralist, who thinks that they are above uh, other people because they are a quote-unquote good person, and he just starts to hammer them at their hypocrisy. And he says, You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You are so quick to teach others. You are so quick to look down at somebody. Or so you're so quick to find the sin in somebody else. When have you taken the time to teach one another? When have you taken the time to look at yourselves and do a little self-inventory on yourself? He says, you who say that one could not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? And you could probably say, well, well wait a second. I, I don't commit adultery on my wife. I'm a, I'm a one-woman man. Paul would say, well, time and time again throughout history, Israel played the harlot. Worshiping false gods of the surrounding nations, that spiritual unfaithfulness of Israel equated to harlotry and adultery in God's eyes. And Jesus took it one step further, and and I know you guys as Bible students know, even to look at a woman in lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. It's not the first look, it's the second or the third look. It's the dwelling on what you just saw. That's That's the commission of adultery, and you've committed it in your heart. Third question he asks, you who preach, one shall not steal. Do you not steal? Whoa, 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 whoa. Paul, we don't steal. We've never stolen. We don't steal anything. Well, in Malachi 3.8, would, would anybody rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. And so the prophet Malachi, the, the, the spirit through the prophet Malachi was condemning the people of Israel for robbing God through tithes and offerings. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? There's an implication here that maybe the religious leaders, these, these self-righteous Jews, would profit from the dishonest practice of, of selling idols, kind of on the black market. Maybe they had kind of a Craigslist page that they sold these things on the down low, but they, they were profiting potentially off of the selling of these, these false gods as a way to, to earn money. And the fifth question, you who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? This final question is the most damning indictment to dishonor God. They were God's chosen people, and yet the Jews were grossly misrepresenting their God through hypocrisy, self-righteousness, judgmental attitudes towards those around them. They were grossly misrepresenting their God, and as a result, they were allowing those, those Gentiles to blaspheme the name of God They were giving cause to the enemy to blaspheme. So if Paul were to go through this same discourse with us as Christians, if he were to put a Christian on a stand, so I started to apply this to my life. And those 11 things would I be able to accurately and defend, if I did a little, uh, little inventory? So I don't necessarily bear the name of Jew. We, we, we now bear the name of Christ. So you bear the name of Christ. You're a Christian. You call yourself a Christian, right? Do you bear the name of Christ? Do you rely? What do you rely on? Do you rely upon the law? No, now I rely upon grace. I'm no longer under the law. I, re, I rely upon God's grace. It's not about adhering to the law. I, re, I rely upon God's undeserved, unmerited favor for me. Do you boast in the law? No, no, no. I, I boast in Christ now. For God forbid, I should boast except at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I know his will. I know his will for my life. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 17. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God, of Christ Jesus for you. Do I know God's will for my life? If, am I rejoicing in everything? It's hard to rejoice right now, right? Some of the things going on in our land... <laughs> Some of the things going on worldwide, it's hard to rejoice at times, even things that are going on personally. But am I rejoicing? Am I praying without ceasing? Am I thankful? That is the will of God for my life. Do I approve of the things that are essential? Love God, love people. Matthew twenty-two, thirty-six, 36, and 39. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the essential things. God said, Jesus said, there's only two laws that I need you. Uh, these two things can sum up the law and the prophets. There is there's no indictment against these two things. Am I loving God? Am I loving people? Keeping it very, very simple. I don't have to get caught up in all the other legalities. Loving God and loving people. Are you instructed out of the law? Jesus said in 14 John 14:26, 14, "But the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and remind you of all that I said to you." So I'm not necessarily instructed out of the law, I'm instructed by the Holy Spirit. He will teach me as I get into the word. He will be the teacher of all things. Are you a guide to the blind? Jesus said in John 9, 39, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. I seek after the Lord and the things that I didn't see at one point, they now become clear to me. I now have spiritual discernment. I can recognize good and evil. I can recognize when something doesn't quite line up with Scripture. I now have spiritual discernment. But those who claim to see, claim to have all the knowledge, professing to be wise, they become fools. They're actually blinded. They become blind. Are you a light to those in the darkness? Jesus said in Matthew 5.16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Am I letting my light shine out to my community, to my family, to those who I work with, to those who I come in contact with at the gas station or the store? Am I letting my light shine? And in in so doing, I have to be connected and abiding with the Lord. And finally, the last three, are you a corrector of the foolish? Well, I would have to say I am foolish. (laughs) For the word of God, excuse me, for the word of the cross is foolish to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So the word of the cross, it's foolishness to people. And at times when you try to share the gospel, it's going to seem like foolishness to somebody. And they may reject you. They may ridicule you. They may even call you a name or two and and objectify you in that way. But it is a foolishness. And at that point, that person, unfortunately, is what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians. They're perishing. They're on the wrong path. They're they're in the wrong boat. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Foolishness of the cross, it is the power of God. Am I the teacher of the immature? In Hebrews 5.14, the writer says, But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And so that solid food, the the meat of the word, not just getting the milk, but getting into the meat of the word, really digging in, really trying to understand the scriptures and see how they can apply to my life. I'm getting trained to discern good and evil. Once again, I'm starting to understand what good is, what evil is. And it's very, very clear to me. And then finally, having the law, the embodiment of the truth. Well, the embodiment of truth isn't the law. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory glory of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth the word of god became flesh came down to dwell among us full of grace full of truth that's one of the most amazing scriptures john 1:14 the word became flesh and dwelt among us and so as a christian I had to really take an inventory on myself. If I was on the witness stand and Paul was hammering on me, would I be able to then take some spiritual inventory of where I'm at and say, "Yes, I can call myself by the name of my Savior." Bearing that name is a big responsibility, and sometimes I think we maybe uh, maybe put that off to the side or really don't consider it. You know, back. Uh, back in my days uh, of playing basketball, we always wanted to represent the program. We always wanted to represent our school, again, something bigger than ourselves. So it was that name across the chest the not on the back kind of a thing. But when we bear the name of Christ, when we go out into the world, we are a reflection, a representation of him, and we should accurately be a representation of him in that way. And so as we get into uh, Sunday's message, Pastor Eric will finish out this chapter, and it's going to be about circumcision. And so as I kind of laid out some heavy stuff tonight, I thought about the priest, the pastor, and the rabbi, and they were going to convert a grizzly bear. <laughs> and the priest went first, and he shared the sacrament of communion and came back and really didn't say much, didn't have a, a lot of luck. And then the pastor, he said, well, I'm going to lay hands on, on this this grizzly bear, pray for him, share the grace of God, the goodness of God. And he's, as he came back, didn't really have a lot of success. And then the rabbi came back and he's bloodied and beaten up, and t- clothes are torn. He's just in really bad shape. He can barely talk. And the priest and the pastor go, What happened? And the rabbi says, Well, maybe I shouldn't have started with circumcision. <laughs> so, anyway, just thought I'd end on a lighter note tonight. But Sunday, Sunday will be about circumcision and Pastor Eric will take that on thankfully. So let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Your word is final. Uh, It is the final authority in our lives and we trust Lord that you are a righteous judge and you indeed will judge the secrets of men. You will See the intents of the heart. The things done in darkness will come to light. And you will do all of that through the lens of Christ Jesus. And Lord, as we see things in our world right now that are unjust, that are not right, it can build frustration. It can build anger. It can build resentment. It can cause division. And Lord, quite frankly, we can misrepresent you and blow our witness. And so, Lord, I pray now as bearers of your name, Lord, that we would bear your name appropriately, fittingly. Lord, that we would not only bear your name fittingly, but we would bring honor and glory to your name. In every situation, in every conversation, in every form of adversity, trial, tribulation, Lord, we would bring glory to your name. We would not be ashamed of the gospel, as Paul said, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Help us to shine brighter now than ever. This world is quickly passing away. It is growing darker by the day. And therefore, Lord, we know that you are coming and you're coming soon. And we pray, Lord, that it could be even tomorrow that you call your church home, you call your bride home. The word imminent means that there is nothing that precedes that calling of us home. And so we want to be a church ready for you. We want to be a bride that is ready for you. So may we not just be hearers of the word, but doers also. During these times of refreshment and equipping, Lord, may it not stop there. May we ask you this week, the rest of this week, what can we do for you, Lord? For we have nothing fitting to bring a king such as yourself, but we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. We want to take up our cross, follow after you, follow after your words that blessed is he who does these things. And we know, Lord, that once we start engaging ourselves in that Christian walk, there's nothing else that satisfies. There's nothing else that gives us that high of serving you, that spiritual high. It is such a blessing. So, Lord, encourage your people, strengthen them, embolden them to live a life that reflects you, that honors you, that shines your light in a dark, dark world. In Jesus, name. let's worship.